Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. As you're turning there, I'd like to tell you about uh, my big black lab I've told you about before, Mavis. Um, Mavis last night came and did what she always does when she wants permission to do what she's not allowed to do, and that is to get up on our bed. And so she'll walk up and she'll put her nose right on the bed and just go. And she wants permission to do what she knows she is not allowed to do. And as we look at this text, and as we've been looking at this series, in many ways as I've thought about it over the last few weeks, what is really going on here is you have humans who are built religiously wanting God to give them permission to just remain as they are. To sort of do what they're not supposed to do, not what they're made to do, not what they're built for but just to remain as they are and not be changed by this kingdom-shaking God. We have seen so far the Pharisees say, God, we just want you to endorse our opinions. We want you to endorse what we think is right and not bring in the righteousness of God into this world that actually makes us right with God so that we can actually admit that sometimes we're wrong. And then you have the Sadducees that want Jesus to jump on their bandwagon and be pessimistic and cynical and not believe in the Bible, just parts of it here and there, and not believe in the supernatural and nothing beyond this world. And they want God to get on that train and just give them permission to continue to think and believe like that. Verses be brought into this huge resurrection story that Jesus has come into the world to blow up death and restore all things. Just asking for permission. And today we're going to see more of the same. We're going to see a last ditch effort. And it's disguised in the question. And it's a good question. It's a legitimate question. And the question is this. What is the greatest commandment? And what we are seeing again is that these religious leaders are asking for permission to live in a world without love. To live in a world not loved, not loving, a world without the love of God. And thankfully, because God is God and Jesus is God, He does not give them what they ask for, He gives them a promise. Before he gives a commandment, he gives them a promise of God's love that actually produces lovers. My neighbor the other night, who's not a Christian, he's Jewish, he said, what are you preaching on? I remember this thing from this preaching book that if somebody wakes you in the middle of the night, you got to say it in like one sentence. And I said, this is it. The promise of God's love that produces lovers. That's what we're looking at today. Let's look at the text. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Here they come again. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. 
And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, to trap him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, as you look at the Bible, the Old Testament, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for your word. Thank you that you continue to speak. Thank you for the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who you have left to comfort us, to counsel us, but in particular to remind us of the things that Jesus said and did that we may too believe. We pray that we would in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a passage uh, at the end of the Gospel of John where Peter, who was, as you know Peter, a great sinner, and would boldly sin in some ways and boldly blow it. And after he is his promised fidelity to Jesus, he ends up denying Jesus, and you know the story. And then after Jesus goes to the cross, not only for our sin, but for Peter's sin and for Peter's denial, and he's resurrected from the grave, one of the first things that he does is he seeks out Peter. You can imagine what it would have been like to be Peter. Does Jesus love me anymore? Can I be loved even though I have denied Jesus? And what does Jesus say? He comes up to him and he says, he says Peter, do you what? Do you love me? And what does Peter say? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And some scholars look at that, and you have to be careful. You can't take this too far. But the word that Jesus uses there is Peter. Do you agape me? Do you love, love me with God kind of love, reciprocal love? Do you love me with that kind of love? And Peter uses a different word in response. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. He didn't say it like that. But. In other words, it's, it's sort of a lesser way of responding. Again, you can't, you can't run with that too far, but there is the indication that when God calls us to this big, glorious love of God, we tend to back up and think, wait a minute, there's no way that I can love God with that kind of love. We lessen the love of God. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 34. What I'm calling the posture of God's enemies, verses 34 through 36, it is anything but lovely. It is anything but loved. What you've got to see about the people asking this question is they do not believe in the love of God. Look at verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, remember the, remember the order of people coming to Jesus. They were questioning his authority. How dare you do these kind of things? How dare you say these kind of things? These parables that sort of indict us. You should be indicting the world. Don't indict us. 
And Jesus, they come at him, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and, and Jesus was like straightforward with the Sadducees. You don't, you're wrong. You don't believe the Bible. You don't believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees hear that Jesus had silenced them. The word literally is muzzled. It's like what you would do on a donkey or an ox. And their response is to what in verse 34? Gather together. Here they come again. Now, this language in the Greek is the same language used in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And it's the same Greek language that is used in guess which psalm? Psalm 2. Where the leaders gather together against God's anointed. And so what you're seeing here is not just again another Nice question, but this is actually an attack on God. They are gathering together against God, and you see it in verses 35 and 36. What do they do? One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Here it comes again, the word test, to trap. In other words, think about this. Think about the posture of the Pharisees. Think about the posture of this lawyer who's coming to Jesus he does not come to Jesus with a question because he really has a question. Right? Your children sometimes come to you and they come with a real question. Mommy, Daddy, I don't understand how that works. But sometimes they come with a question because they just don't want to do what you say, right? Well, why, why, why? They, this man is not coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I just want to learn from you. I want to sit at your feet. I want to adore you. I want to listen to you. He's not even a seeker. He's not a Nicodemus at night. He's not even curious. He's not even thinking, maybe God, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. He's coming to test him and to trap him. Where is the trap? It's in the question. What does he ask? Teacher... Again, he doesn't think Jesus is God. What is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this was a normal question. This was a question that people asked rabbis all the time. There were answers for it. People actually would say things like, love the Lord your God, the Shema, and all that stuff. But think about that question for just a minute. What is the greatest commandment? How is that a trap? Well, a good Jew of the Old Testament would say all the laws in the Bible are equal. There are 613 according to most as they looked at the Old Testament. And so in other words, they would say they're all weightier. They're all weighty. They're all equal. And so if Jesus says, well, this one is more important, then what are they going to do? They're going to trap him. Well, so you're saying that's important well, what about that one? You're saying that isn't important? You're sort of soft about the Bible? It would be like today saying, Jesus, is it more important to love your spouse or to love your children? Uh, Jesus, is it more important to be concerned about poverty of spirit or caring about the poor? Do you see, if you answer it this way, well, somebody's going to consider you this. If you answer it this way, they're, gonna, they're trying to trap him. But even more so, deeper than that, look at the content of this question. What are they asking? For what are they asking? They are asking for Jesus to give them the greatest promise, the greatest truth, 
the greatest attribute of God, none of the above. They are asking for a commandment. In other words, behind their question is the assumption and the framework that God is a God of commandments. First and foremost, not promises. In other words, that God is more concerned about legalities than love. You see that? Don't trust me, trust John Calvin, because he's the one that brought this up. He said, look, they're coming to Jesus, and what they should have done is they should have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, we're a wreck. We're so legalistic. We're so caught up in a trap of law-keeping. Uh, what must we do to be saved? Or they could have come to Jesus and say, God, we, we just want to know about the true God of the Bible. There's some confusing things in there with Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We're not sure how to understand all this. What's it all about? Or We know there's a lot of commandments, but is it just commandments? Or, or is, there, is there a promise there? In other words, what Calvin is saying is they are trapped. They are trapped in what, what theologians call a legal frame that their hearts are legalistically trapped to this frame, but that, that God is a God of legalities and not a God of love. They are prisoners of a loveless religion. So many of the Puritans used to write about liberty, spiritual liberty, that when the gospel comes, it brings freedom, not enslavement. And these question askers are trapped. You may have heard in the book of Deuteronomy about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was, came around and it was what every servant waited for. In other words, it didn't matter what you did to incur servitude. It did not matter what you did to become a slave. When the year of Jubilee came and it was declared, guess what you received? Freedom freedom. And yet Deuteronomy also says that if you so choose, you can be a perpetual slave. And what they would do is they would go to their master and say, pierce my ears. My dad would not have liked that. And Jesus is saying, why are you choosing perpetual slavery? When you can be free. I found out this week that uh, a beautiful thing. I have Spotify. And on Spotify, you can actually listen to the Chronicles of Narnia. Done like the British way, the good ones. And so I've been re-listening to The Magician's Nephew. It's my favorite. It tells the whole creation of Narnia. And I won't go on and on. But there's this character that is, is, he's called Uncle Andrew. And if you know the story, Uncle Andrew is this elderly man. He's a grandfather and he's this magician wannabe. And he wants to learn magic so that he can have power and glory and fame and wealth and all those things. And he finds about this other world and he has these rings that get you into this other world. But he's too chicken to do it himself. So he sends some guinea pigs. 
And then he realizes they don't come back, and he wants to know what's in that other world. And so he gets his grandson, Diggory, and his friend Polly, and he tricks them into going into this other world to check it out. They come back and say how good it is, and so he, he attaches on, and he goes into this other world, and all of a sudden they're there, and Aslan is creating Narnia, and he's singing it into existence. It's just beautiful. Give me, give me chill bumps thinking about it. But there's old Uncle Andrew, enslaved to his legal frame, complaining, whining, grumbling, can't see the truth and the beauty and the goodness. And so as punishment, he's sort of put in this jail of trees that are webbed together, and he can't get out, and he just sits in there and he eats and he grumbles. So Polly, being merciful, comes to Aslan, and she says, Aslan, could you please do something about my Uncle Andrew? And this is Aslan's response. I can't tell these things to this old sinner, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would only hear growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. You see what he's saying? He's saying he's just like the Pharisees who, who cleverly defend themselves and, and build these little legal frames that, that God is like this. That God is not a God of promise, but God is a God of just commands. Do any of you struggle with that? And the answer is yes. We are all sons of Adam. But thankfully, look at the second point. That is the posture of God's enemies. That is our flesh. That is the legal frame that thinks that God is not loving, and it makes us sort of un unloving. And yet what we see in the second point is the posture of God toward these with his posture, but also his response. And it is a loving God, and it is a God of love. Look at verse 37. And this is amazing. And he said to them, now how many of you parents, when your kids have come for the third time arguing the point, when you like me said, okay, we've had the discussion, I respect your opinion, I want you to have feedback, it's been a discussion, now here's the declaration, right? And they come back and usually you go, that's it, we're done, right? That's not what Jesus does. It's amazing his mercy and his tenderness and his patience and his long-suffering to respond to his enemies like this and not just shut them down. But instead he interacts with them and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, etc. We're going to get into that for a minute. But the first thing that I want you to see about Jesus' response is he actually answers their question. But he doesn't answer it like they ask it. He doesn't jump like we would straight to the commands. And you've got to see this here because you would overlook it because you, like me, have a legal frame and you would go, okay, here's the answer. Love God, love your neighbor, that's it. That's what we got to do, right? But what Jesus gives them first when they ask for a command, he gives them first a relationship, a promise, and a word. Look at the relationship. Where do we see that? You shall love what? 
You shall love whom? You shall love the Lord your God. In other words, you shall love Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? This covenant-keeping God who's not just in the cosmos. He's not just some deist God. He's not some out-there God. He's not a legal God. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh of the Bible, the same one that he talked about last week, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a living, personal, relational God. And before we talk about commands, we have to talk about that. That this God wants, desires, and does everything so that a people can belong to Him. Listen to what it says. You would have never put this in there, and I would not have put this in there because we have legal frames. But Jesus is God. And He says, Love the Lord your God. And let's just stop there for a second. Martin Luther, it was said, loved to just meditate on this word, your to play on the joy of the word your. He would sit in it that I belong to God, that God belongs to me, that we belong to God. He is our God. This is a God with an address, one writer said, and you are the address. See, they asked for commandments, and Jesus says, let's start with the relationship. This is your God. And secondly, he says, and look at the promise. Again, they ask for a command and Jesus gives them a promise. Well, Fritz, where's the promise? Well, there's a lot in that covenant keeping God and we could go explain the covenant and how God did everything for his people. But it's right there sort of implicitly. Listen to what he says. You will do what? You will love the Lord your God. You will love your neighbors yourself. When you first hear that, you think, I know a lot of you go back to those old movies, black and white. You shall, right? Here's the commandments. And children, anytime you hear, you shall pick up your room, you hear that as strictly what? A commandment. Do this or else. That's fine. There's a part of that that's true. Listen to it a little differently. Think of it as a promise. Fritz, I know you don't think you can love her for as long as I give her to you. You will. I'm your God. You belong to me. I know you only see your sin with your children. You will love them. You will ask for their forgiveness and forgive them. You will. But God, I, you will. Do you hear the promise? You ever hear the commandments that way? They all flow out of this. Go back to Exodus and Deuteronomy. It's all, I've done, I've done, I've done, I've redeemed you, I've redeemed you, I've redeemed you. You will. You shall. The, think about this analogy for a minute. Riding a bike, learning to ride a bike as a child. Let's say your father or your mother or your sibling taught you how to ride a bike. If they said to you, you will ride that bike. Ride it. Who's excited about riding that bike and learning? You will be in counseling for 10 years. 
getting over that. Now, what if your father, your mother, your sibling love you? And they say, I love you so much. I bought this bike for you, and I know you don't know how to ride it. I know you're a legal frame, and I know you've got this flesh sin problem. You're going to ride that bike. You will ride that bike. You hear the promise? And then he gives us a word, agape. It was not new to the Bible. It had been around, but the best I could figure out is pretty much minted by the New Testament. The New Testament took and blew it up. Over 200 times this word is in here. Jesus used it all the time, and you can Google it all day, and you can come up with all sorts of definitions, but here, here's my shot. Agape love, where he says, you will love the Lord your God. You will agape. Can you believe that? Peter, you think you're just going to do this. You're going to do this because of my love for you. Love makes you love. And if you're not loved, you won't love. Talk to counselors and psychologists. They'll tell you that all day long. But Jesus says, you have the agape love of God. And you will agape. What is the agape love of God? It is undeterred, unrelenting, unconditional, not based on the object. It's not mushy. It's not even emotional. It's not feelings-based. It's, it's initiated and originated by God for us. Children, you know the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't, ask for it for Christmas. It says it like this. God loves us with a never-ending, never-giving-up, unstopping, always-and-forever love. Who does that? Romans 5, Paul says it like this. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And that word in the Greek means dumped. Like backing up a dump truck and just undulating. Flowing love from God. Where? Into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit. And it's an ongoing process because we need it over and over and over because we go back to that legal frame and God goes, Psh! That's why we pick up our Bibles and pray and come to church because we need the love of God. 1 John says, like this is how God showed His agape among us. He didn't just say it. He just didn't say, I'm going to do it, or mushy feelings. He did something. He sent His one and only Son of the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that you loved God. What do we do? What's the greatest commandment? Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let me illustrate this really quickly. I asked my son for permission you know, with your children, you're always like, by God's grace, this happened, or we'll see long term, trust God. But our youngest son has been through a lot, and we've not always responded greatly. And it can be challenging. But we think by God's grace, there's been some good things happening in his life, and there's been some great moments and great conversations, and I've shared this with a few of you. And, and there's been a real change of heart and attitude and and as we've asked him about that, this is how he explained it. He said, you know, I know you guys didn't always agree with what I did and said. And I know sometimes you gave me a hard time about it. But I knew you loved me unconditionally. And then he said this, quote, well, mom, you love me unconditionally. Dad, you got upset, but you'd apologize. <laughs> True story. We've, 
read them the Bible, taught them the Bible, and done some catechisms, but what really is at the heart of the Bible? What do you... What are you trying to communicate? How do you communicate that unconditional agape love? That's what wins us over. And that's what causes the third thing, the response from those who were his enemies. And he's inviting these Pharisees. I'd have shut them down. I'd be like, okay, I'm, not, I'm done with this conversation. And he's inviting them to repentance. Verses 37 and 38, and the kindness and unlimited patience of God, he answers their questions and he says to them, Look, even though you're trying to trap me, you are loved. You can be loved. Covenantal, agape love. You can belong to God. Sinners like you that try to trap God and get entrapped in a legal frame can be freed from that and love God. We see three things about that response. The first is it's inward. Again, our love is a response to God's love. It affects our motivations. And, and as Jonathan Edwards wrote beautifully about our affections, not just out here affections, but deep within our inner core. See, he first loved us, and our response is this inward answering, responding love. That's what you want to see in your children long term. Not outward obedience and rule keeping. Repent of that and pray for the interior motivational, affectionate heart love change. We're going to sing in a minute love constraining obedience. That word constrain in our terms is narrow and tight. In the old terms, it's wide open. It means that God's love compels and brings about and motivates for the love of God compels us. It's the exact thing you see demonstrated in Matthew 26 where Jesus is anointed with a very expensive perfume and all the legalists in the room, the disciples, all go, what's she doing? And Jesus said, what she's doing is something beautiful. She gets it. And men, notice in the Bible very often, she gets it. We should listen and learn because women seem to just humbly get it quicker than we do. We're dead. Let's not get into that. Secondly, it's not just inward, it's upward. Verse 37, he does say, here's your response. Yes, here's your answer. Once you get the love of God, you respond to it. It changes your heart. And you say, God, what must I do to love you back? How do I love you? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And all. He used a different word in the Old Testament, a di different word in another. Don't worry about all that. He just says, all your faculties, everything you've got will respond to God with love. And then he says, your response is outward, verse 39. You will. You will love your neighbor as yourself. He cites Leviticus 19. I want to hold that thought. I want to come back to the neighbor to the end. But I just want to see, I want to show you how he ties these together. Look at verse 38. Notice that he says, love of God upward, so to speak, and love of neighbor outward, you can't divide them. We want to divide them. Jesus says what God has, has wed together, do not put asunder. We can't divide them. They're indivisible. They are like the two most important 
uh, ingredients in a recipe. Should it be baking soda or baking powder? I don't know. They're both important. And it's the chef and the baker, the love behind it that is the most important. But both have to be in there. Yes, there is priority, Jesus says in verse 38. There is a greater one, yes, if there's a tie, this one wins. We cannot obey man. We must obey God. Sometimes you got to look at your teenager and say, I might lose you over this, but I'm following Jesus. But he says, when you love God, verse 39, the second is just like it. It is equally important. Don't try to break them up. See, we can't love God without loving our neighbor. I can come here and I can raise my hands and I love worshiping and I loved our jazzy music today and I can raise my hands and I can go outside and raise my fist in the car immediately and God says, what are you doing? It's just squishy pietism. But also we can't just say, well, I love my neighbor and I care about people and social issues and just ignore God. In fact, he says the only way to understand how to love your neighbor is verse 39. It all depends on these two things. See, they had, again, 613 laws. Imagine you walk into your house where your kids might hang their coats, and there's 613 pegs. And for every question that comes along on loving God or neighbor, you have to be like, oh, i got to figure out which peg. I got. Oh, this is going to take forever. Jesus says, Get rid of those pegs. Here's the peg. Love of God, two pegs. He loves you. Love him, love your neighbor. Simple, right? So you, you go to the Bible and say, yes, there are other things in the law and the prophets. Like Amos says you can't just care about sexual sin. You got to care about the poor. Amos says you can't just care about the poor and not care about sexual sin. It's all there. Love of God and love of neighbor. Couple applications and we're done. Who is your neighbor? Probably who you're angry at right now. One of you put me onto a great podcast from an atheist that was debating with N.T. Wright. It was a beautiful, loving debate. So gracious the way they did it. And the atheist said, you know, Christians are getting hung up on all these social things. And some of them we need to think about and talk about and do things, all that good stuff. But he says, what y'all do best and what you're forgetting is that you love your enemies. That's otherworldly. You love your enemies. If you realize that you were once an enemy of God and God pours out His love, you will be moved to love your enemies. Mother Teresa, when she won the Nobel Peace Prize, someone said, Mother Teresa, how do you change the world? You know what her answer was? Almost what I tell my kids. I tell my kids, do the dishes. She said, go home and love your neighbor. Go home and love your neighbor. Your neighbor is the person right in front of you. It's the Apple spokesman that you can't understand their voice and they won't give you that charge back that they owe you. It's the wife when you're trying to put a mattress frame together 
It doesn't go too well. It's your roommate. It's your children. It's your boss. It's your employer, your employee. It's your neighbor. It's the liberal if you're conservative. It's the conservative if you're kind of liberal. That's who your neighbor is. Finally, how? What's it look like? Jesus is real clear here. He says, you don't need a lot of help on this one, verse 39, <laughs> as you love yourself. I'm not going to talk about the psychological part of people like emotionally, verbally abusing and never, that's a whole other side of this. That's not what he's talking about here, I don't think. He's simply saying, look, as Luther defined sin, he said sin is us being curved in on ourselves. In other words, the, the beauty of the Trinity is that God's love between the persons of the Trinity just outpoured, overflowed, undulated love toward one another, and the whole point of creation was to share that love. And then we botched it, but that did not stop the love of God. He sent Jesus. He overflowed the brim of that creek with the second person of the Trinity who came into this world to actually die for our devilish, inward-looking, curved-in-ourselves self-obsession to make us turn outward. That is the love of God that changes us. A lot of people want to drag Jesus into a lot of debates. You can see him in every question here. And all throughout the Bible and all throughout the church, plenty of debates, plenty of debates right now. But really what Jesus is saying is this. Here's the debate. Does God love me or does he not? And Jesus' answer is absolutely. It's undeterring. It's unrelenting. Never ending. And it's summed up and the life and the death of his son for us so that we can respond in love to him and respond in love to our neighbors. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being clear, for shooting straight, for being honest. Thank you for being loving. Even in your response to those trying to trap you. Thank you for reminding us of the love of God. Thank you for demonstrating to us that love through your own death for us. So move our hearts that we respond to you. We answer your love with love for you that is beautiful and biblical. And for our neighbor that is equally beautiful and biblical unto your glory until you return. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.